Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking replacements. More specifically, we're talking Trouble Boys, the Bob Mayer biography of the replacements uh, that we are a little bit late to, but hell, let's talk about it anyway. You can learn more about the podcast at brotherpod.com, rate and review us on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook for more info. Now let's get to the show. back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, it's a three for tonight. It's uh, me, Jeremy Sartori, and Christian Lewis, uh, full, full Brother, Brother, Brother pod. And today we are discussing Trouble Boys, the uh, Bob Mayer uh, biography of The Replacements. And um, this was the, uh, I, I, we're pretty much considering this the first meeting of the Brother, Brother, Brother book club, as well as, uh, you know, this re- required the first piece of uh, uh, Brother, Brother, Brother homework. But um, I, you know, I, for one, love the book. Uh, I know uh, from my conversations with these guys, they did too. I think it's one of the best rock books I've ever read, and I, and I, uh, I read a uh, disproportionate number of them. So um, I think we're going to start off with a, with a discussion of the book itself and then go into a discussion of the band. But uh, it, it was interesting um, where the uh, book itself was, was divvied up into four sections, um, which I, uh, I think kind of explain in pretty, pretty good explanation of, of the life of the replacements. But, yeah, what were the yeah. four sections Well, again? I think it's a good way to talk about the book, too. And, and the first part was Jail, Death, or Janitor. Um, and then there's a, a part two, a band for our time, and uh, part three, dreams and games, and then the last. So I think we can start with uh, Jail, Death, or Janitor. What do you guys think? Which, which I believe was the uh, band's internal motto, because it was um, basically the three uh, roads they possibly could go down in life. Jail, Death, Janitor, or Make This Band a Success. And... Uh, I think death definitely happened. Uh, there probably was some jailing. The success of the band was not something that uh, and had ever surprisingly was few. That's right, two janitors. So it was Slim Dunlop. But um, yeah, I mean, the thing that struck me about part one was, you know, for me, and, and I really love this book and, and love this band and, and have a, a ability to read pretty much any book about any band, even bands I don't love, but it's a, it's a you know, huge plus when, when both come together and, and uh, was just how rough the upbringing of these guys were, especially the Stinson brothers. So the band is um, the original members, Chris Mars, Paul Westerberg, Bob, and Tommy Stinson. And, um, you know, the Stinsons, you, you just realize what a, what a tough, tough childhood these guys had filled with alcoholism, abuse, uh, poverty, um, moving around the country and, uh, you know, really is later in the book, which we'll, we'll talk about kind of took its toll on these guys, but a lot of bands that you think of kind of come from, you know, art school or, uh, just, um, you know, New York city or other places that, that are a little, um, more, what would you say, sort of. Well, I think as, I think the, the replacements are the, you know, they're the, 
the band that actually comes from the um, background that is romanticized by so many other people, uh, the sort of, uh, you know, rough and tumble, uh, you know, fight in the street kind of uh, uh, background that, that so many people sort of posture and pose at, but not that many people experience. Uh, you know, everybody likes to dabble in the on the Lower East Side in the 70s, but... Uh, Fewer you know, there. Growing up in the, I think growing up in the Stinson household sounded a hell of a lot worse. It was pretty ugly. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, you know, all of them, I mean, even, you know, Paul Westerberg and Chris Mars, who obviously came from, uh, you know, more... Less to- turbulent. Yeah, less toxic family environments still had tough upbringings as well, and, and it's kind of what brought them all together. Yeah, I think also, you know, I mean, it, it, it's funny. Um, I, I always think of this now in the, the sort of era of overprescription. Uh, Jeremy's the only one of us that has kids, but, you know, the sort of playdate culture um, that per, is pervasive now. I mean, these guys were largely, Tommy particularly, who joined the band uh, or started playing in the band at the age of 12. Um, these guys are, these are essentially just uh, unsupervised children. Um, and that, that sort of, you know, there was, you know, there's a danger to that, but there's also an autonomy that grows out of that, um, that I think is really reflective and, you know, reflected in the band's, you know, uh, attitude there, everything about them. I mean, I remember reading about them, uh, as a kid and, you know, ultimately, uh, I think the first album I owned by them was Let It Be, um, when that came out. But, you know, you're talking about a, a kid who was... 14, I think, at the time from Let It Be came out, and it was touring extensively. I think he had, I think it addresses this in the book, but you know, he had to have um, permission slips to drop out, permission slips to go on the road, um, you know, and all of that stuff was, was you know, uh, executed or forged in one way or another by his, uh, his uh, you know, his brother, his mother, others. I, I would say one of the things that really struck me about that, and you know, one of the most sort of profound, um, profound sort of stories that I remember from this is the fact that you know it was Bob Stinson who gave his what eleven, twelve year old brother a, uh, a base in the first place, which was basically to keep him from going the same route that he did. So he'd had such a you know shitty high school experience. Well, it wasn't um, a high school experience; he was in uh, juvenile well, detention. Right. Yeah. But I mean, high school years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, you know, this was this was sort of a way of, of you know, he connected with his, his instrument and thought that his, his younger brother could benefit basically from um, from from the same experience. But, you know, the the fact is, like when when they interviewed um, when when Mary interviews uh, interviews their mother, she was also willing to write these permission slips. It's not like. You know, it, which which is just amazing to me. Um, but I think you know, from from her perspective, maybe this was she wasn't clearly the best mother when it came to when it came to Bob, and and you know, perhaps the best way to get a real life education um, was to was to send this kid out on the road. He was learning more and doing more, and um, certainly drinking more than he would have uh, probably at home. So yeah, I, I actually, you know, it's funny. I um, you know, I. I Again, can't sing the praise of this book enough, but it really almost came off as a novel to me. Um, you know, I uh, I had heard enough of the mythology around the band, but this was such a well-researched and well-executed, well-written book. It really came off as a novel uh, to me almost. I mean, and, and this part of it, um, you know, between the, uh, you know, the sort of uh, bleakness of 
of juvenile detention centers in Minnesota and, you know, a 14, 15-year-old going out on the road, it, it, it has a, uh, I don't know, I mean, to call it Dickensian would be way too obnoxious, but it has a, a you know, it definitely has a, a quality to it that, that seems almost fictional. Well, the book also does a great job of laying the groundwork of kind of the dynamics of the band. So you had... The Stinson Brothers, Chris Mars, and uh, I don't remember the other gentleman's name, but in a band and playing. And then, you know, Paul Westerberg was kind of on his own. And these guys were... Dog breath. Dog breath, that's right. And where they were not influenced, you know, by your typical, you know, Velvet Undergrounds and and sort of art punk bands. They were influenced by Yes and and Kiss and and classic rock. Um, And, you know, Paul Westerberg was sort of failing around the bar scene, rock and roll scene in, in Minneapolis and happened to walk by this house every night and just heard the shredding band and, and you know in the basement and went in and peeked in and kind of kind of pushed his way in the band and pushed the original singer out and uh, which set up kind of a dynamic where you know Chris Mars was sort of writing the songs pre Westerberg and uh, you know I think they were content being a, a local kind of basement band and, and Paul really brought in brought in a new vision and, and songwriting and, and drive to the band. So that's got to be one of the least believable um, but best stories in this that, of course, turns out to be true, which is the fact that Westerberg would walk past this uh, this house where he could hear this band practicing every single not, day. Not just any band. And just dog say to breath. himself, <laughs> exactly, the dog breath. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, I think, like, he, he heard this incredible just clamor coming out of the basement and said, oh, man, you know, one of these days, all right, I'm going to be in that band. And then, of course... He meets up with Jesperson, who uh, owner of a local record store, um, and and friend of his, who says he's going to go uh, going to go introduce him to these guys. And lo and behold, they roll up at the house, and it's the house that he's been walking past every day for the last couple of months. Which I mean, it just seems like that's sort of one of those uh, one of those moments of where you myth. feel, yeah, exactly. I mean, you if you wrote that into a novel, somebody would tell you you're a shitty writer. Yeah. <laughs> It feels very much like the, uh, you know, the whatever the, you know, the Kings of Leon uh, origin story that their publicists came up with. But it actually seems to be true. It, it bears out. But the, I think one of the uh, interesting pieces of this, and, uh, you know, you touched on it a second ago, the ambition of the band and how the sort of dynamics changed. I don't think, you know, and I think this is a through line in the entire story is that Bob Stinson was not that keen, nor was he at all prepared to uh, graduate beyond being, you know, a guy who gets cheered at a, at a local shitty bar. Um, you know, the whole idea of him getting in, a, in the spotlight it was just too much. I mean, the guy had been through too much. He was, you know, I think, uh, you know, safe to say he was mentally ill and... Uh, obviously had uh, a lot of substance abuse problems um once he once the band took on a certain level you know a certain profile a certain level of popularity um you know his antics and his his uh you know behavior was so counterproductive um that you know he wound up being kicked out of the band by his own brother and, and Westerberg um and the, the, you know this is the part that you know where we sort of um, you know where our, our uh, you know intersection with the, with the story kind of uh, deviates because this is actually when I first started seeing them, and you know I remember seeing 
this funny big fucker in a tutu getting up and being so wasted and and doing Sabbath covers and Aerosmith covers because they were in, you know, Providence. And uh, it, it, it wasn't fun. Uh, now, in retrospect, you know, it's really fun to read about that and be like, yeah, I was at that show at the living room, and I was at that show, at, you know, here, and it was a shit show, and it was awesome. But the fact is, like, you know, I'd sneak out of my house. I was in high school, sneak out of my house, you know, go down and meet some friends, drive down to Providence, you know, pay to go see these guys, and it was just a shit show. Yeah. So, you know. Sorry, go ahead, one. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I think the book really details that kind of, you know, just the extreme behavior that became too extreme. So, I mean, the band starts off, you know, sort of pseudo-hardcore. I mean, you go back and listen to those albums, and, and they're really just fast rock and roll albums. You know, there's there's not a yeah, lot pretty of... pretty poppy. Yeah, I mean, it's actually something that, and, you know, we'll talk about our sort of entry to the replacements a little later, but... Um, they weren't the hardcore that I was listening to when I first got into punk rock and hardcore. And, and you know, I think that they obviously got attention for being a step above that scene and, and you know, being a, a better band for all intents and purposes. But what you see pretty quickly is the deterioration of Bob Stinson and, and then the maturation of, of Westerberg's songwriting, which also became a huge conflict in the band. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the... the I don't know if it, it wasn't the complexity. I mean, certainly Bob Stinson was uh, a very capable player. He was a really good guitar player. Um, it was just, I think, you know, and you're speculating at this point, but again, I think Bob Mayer does a great job in this book of of not making you speculate too much about, um, because he's very thorough about uh, uh, the interviews he conducted around, you know, the periods uh, where, where, you know, they, they got rid of, Bob Stinson and and also the the you know the the notion that getting rid of Bob was going to make them uh, serious a more serious band or it was going to get rid of the whatever problems they were having uh, coping with shit on the road and in fact you know they were all a bunch of booze bags and they were all uh, doing too much of everything and they were all too self destructive um, so getting rid of Bob really just got rid of the scapegoat instead of getting rid of the problem. It was also kind of funny to, they're not funny at all, it's a pretty heavy book actually I'll say, and for those of you who haven't read it, it, it's mainly, I mean, there's no other, Bob's dead, so Bob is not involved in the book, but it's Slim Dunlop, who was later guitarist who replaced Bob, Tommy, and, and Paul Westenberg were interviewed, and then just numerous producers, family members, and other folks in the scene, um, and that Bob Muir speaks to, and gives you a really complete picture of, of you know, the replacements are as complete as could be without the other two. Um, but, you know, the other thing that was that was kind of crazy was just the the sort of petulance of Paul Westerberg, who was a guy that had this talent, you know, that could write songs like, you know, uh, I Will Dare or, or uh, Within Your Reach and, and uh, you know, could write basically like hit rock songs, but just any time he came close to the, the flame of, of fame or success you know, poured gasoline on it and, and lit it on fire with or without Bob Stinson. Sometimes yeah. literally. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's also, it's all very well documented, I think, you know, I mean, people have seen the, you know, hope, probably people have, who like the replacements have seen the clip of them on Saturday Night Live, um, you know, again, which, when you revisit it, isn't as much of a shit show as it's made out to be, historically, but again, you know, having seen some of their, re- you know, yeah, and I didn't see that many shows, but I probably saw them you know, close to 10 times when I was younger, um, and then a handful of times on the reunion uh, tour where they were fantastic and uh, shockingly, you know, probably better than they ever were uh, or as good as they ever were. But, you know, there were nights when they were fantastic and there were nights when, you know, they just decided that, you know, their, uh, you know, that, that um, whatever, for whatever reason, they just weren't going to try. Was it the pressure? Was it? I mean, I think it was sort of the cumulative pressure of being on the road. But it sounds to me like they were always sort of aiming for a fairly delicate chemical equilibrium. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think it, it it's almost you're almost putting too much thought into it when you say some nights um, some nights they would be great, other nights they just weren't going to try. And I'm sure they did phone it in. But some nights, I mean, I think. You know, they always needed to be a certain amount of fucked up, let's call it 8 out of 10, um, to put on a great show. But by the time you hit 9 out of 10, they're completely incoherent and unable to perform. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've seen, a, I've seen a million bands mail it in. This wasn't mailing it in. This was lighting it on fire. You know, this was, you know, hanging up a pinata and beating the shit out of it. It was, you know, it wasn't... There, it wasn't mailing it. There's, there's times when you see bands and and you can really read of a mood of a band. You know, like oh, these guys look like they're gonna break up, or um, you know, these guys are sick of being out on tour. They don't like each other. Yeah, they don't like each other. No, this was just like, you know, this was the same as any party you've ever gone to, where like somebody gets, you know, somebody gets wasted, and it's. You know, the parents are away and, and somebody decides they're going to shove, you know, find a can of sardines and put them in the, you know, in the heating vents uh, just just for the fuck of it. Um, I don't know where I came up with that example, by the way. Um, but, <laughs> High school? You know, it, 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 yeah. No, really, it really was, um, you know, it, it was more of just lighting fire to the situation and it was fairly arbitrary it wasn't like oh shit we hate cleveland we're gonna fuck up there it was like it just matter it just, i think it all depended on what time of day they started drinking right well so, and i think too i mean it was just you know well documented in the book where they you know would go to early even in the early days they would go you know if there was enough skinheads or punks at the show they would play all country covers or if there was you know the opposite they would do yeah, yeah I mean they, they sort of had that relationship with their crowd um, I mean what were some of the highlights Slash never matured I mean uh, you know part of that is is yeah it's it's a um, it's a maturity issue, right? I mean, you think about like the way that a lot of twelve and thirteen year olds behave, and that is part of it. I mean, I do Especially think that these guys, drunk. at some level, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. But I mean, I do think uh, you know these guys were sort of frozen in time at like a certain stage in development in their lives, and they never really got past that super antagonistic way of dealing with any kind of confrontation, any kind of adversity. Plus, there's the added fact that you know they, they and and Mary, I think, really does capture this. Like these guys were so profoundly insecure um at some level and you know they they didn't i mean they they were angry because they maybe didn't think that they could 
make Had it as to. big as they wanted or they got to, you know, or, or they were they were on the cusp of making it too big and they would just self-destruct every time. I mean, it was like clockwork. You know, you put an opportunity in front of them and you were so guaranteed to have it shoot up and spit back in your face, yeah. which is sort of, after a certain point, I mean, you know, I, like, I love this band. Um, maybe not as much as you guys, but, like, there's something just kind of repulsive about it after page 400. Yeah, it actually was really hard to read the book. It was it was really sad, um, you know. I mean, ultimately, I you know, like I said, I love the book, but it, it it was more emotionally affecting than I ever would have wanted it to or thought it could be. Um, and yeah. I think to that, you know, like I, I was about to say, the the one thing they feared more than not being liked was being liked. Um, and I think you know it was it was a really strange. It's a really strange, but really weirdly emotional read. Um, and it, it uh, you know, it's sort of like reading All Souls or or something like that, where you know you're just like, God, these guys survived a lot, and you know I can understand some of them. I can, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I mean, you, you know, Jar and I, uh, you know, uh, independent of you know, and a long time ago, um, I think it was Spin Magazine uh, that had the yeah. interview, and actually, it's document well documented it in the book. book yeah. Um, you know, there were they sent a very uh, junior uh, journalist to interview Bob Stinson, and uh, you know it was after he had been kicked out of the band and was you know doing various ventures around um, Twin Cities, and you know he just Bob Stinson just sort of I think um, you know uh, casually and and sort of. Um, I think it almost seemed politely, you know, sort of was like, oh, do you want to do some heroin? Um, to the uh, to the porter who, you know, gleefully thought he had gotten his, um, you know, his uh, pull quote and, and went with it. And, uh, you know, I mean, he feels terrible about it, um, you know, as he's interviewed in the book. But that I just remember reading that story in Spin Magazine in uh, the mid-'90s or early-'90s and just being profoundly depressed by it. And um, yeah, it was, you know, it was reading about a drug addict or an alcoholic without really kind of you know, I don't know, you know, having some experience with that sort of thing. But but it, it was a really sad piece. I, I read it in real time as well, and it was just I think we I think we did call each other separately and like, did you read that? <laughs> I just feel really bad after reading yeah, that. It was so sad. It was really upsetting. It was really upsetting in a, at a time when you know neither one of us were particularly well equipped to you know say like oh, I, I read that and it made me really sad it made me really upset it was more like wow that guy's fucked up but um you know when and i think that's you know the way that uh you know this book you, you sort of approach this book too is you know you read it and it makes you i mean you're you're i was thrilled to read it because i wanted a thorough uh investigation and a thorough reportage of of what the replacements are you know what it was like um, in real time and what, you know, what had happened, uh, with that band. Cause they were one of my favorite bands, but also, you know, I did walk away from it kind of sad. It's a band for me that, that has really held up as one of my favorites of, you know, my early kind of getting into music replacements is, is a cornerstone and where a lot of those bands have kind of faded for me and I probably don't go back to, I go back to these guys as much as I go to anything. And, mm-hmm. um, I thought the book kind of it hit all spectrums. You know, it was really exciting for me. I was I'm one of the, the few who never got to see them live, um, and so it was always a, a mission of mine, which which I uh, 
didn't get to do, but it is what it is. And, you know, I um, ended up, you know, kind of reliving that through this or living that through the book. So there were some really, like, great times. It got me, you know, back into some of the albums that I, I didn't listen to as much or haven't listened to as much. And then it was really frustrating and really, you know, sad as well. It kind of reminded me, and I'm sure you guys have this in your, your friendships as well, like, I have a couple of friends who are just really smart, really talented people who just constantly shoot themselves in the foot. And that's what this book was to me. It was like that friend that you're just like, ah, you know, like, God, I just, I wish he would do it differently You're exhausting. Time. You know, yeah, exactly. And it was, uh, but it was, I, I found really rewarding too. I just thought it was, you know, completely well done and, you know, captured all parts of, of you know, these guys really went the distance. Yeah can't recommend it highly enough but i also i would also say that you know there's the i always say there's two kinds of concerts there's a concert that you leave and you want to listen and it makes you listen to the band you know a lot more and there's a concerts that you leave that make you not want to listen to that band for a long time or maybe never again and this was you know the this has a this conversation has the tenor of, of making it uh, the the latter, but it's really the former. I mean, I came off of reading this book and listened to the replacements a shitload this year. So it is. It yeah, does. and I, I think that that's a, that's an important sort of you know the the tenor of this book ultimately is is it's written from a perspective of somebody who is able to forgive them all their faults uh, because of how great the music was, and you know I think that that's sort of. Um, an important distinction. I mean, you know, everybody who was interviewed could recount story after story after story of these guys either insulting them or uh, doing something to offend them, um, you know, reasons that they ultimately shouldn't be forgiven, but at the end of the day, they were. It was just sort of, even Jesperson, their first uh, their first band manager, a guy who, by all accounts, basically went to hell and back for them because he believed in their ability um, and then was sort of thrown to the curb pretty unceremoniously. Even he, uh, you know, I think I, I think remained a, a, a sort of... Them. Yeah, a loyalist to the end. He, he, he saw the potential, he saw the greatness in them um, and sort of wanted to, wanted to unlock it as, as best he could. But, um, you know, I, I think that that's why for all of the... For all of the, the negativity around it or you know and i think we're sort of capturing that as we're thinking back anecdote by anecdote on this uh, on this book you know it really you do come away from it um thinking really i mean you, you you're very positive on the band at the end of the day because mm-hmm. for, in spite of their personalities their music had this just like sort of soaring incredible effect that like you know, you want to remember them favorably. You want to like these guys in spite of everything, which is which is a sort of incredible um, achievement when you think about it. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I will give a special shout out to uh, my friend Michael Hill, who who has a fairly uh, significant uh, a role in the book. He was the guy who's he was the label their label guy at, at Warner Brothers, and um, you know. Uh, he was he was the guy uh, who you know in in you know sixty percent of these anecdote, uh, anecdotes winds up you know having having to make the apologies um, uh, inside and outside. But um, great guy, and um, it was it was really fun for me to read um, about his role in the, in the whole thing. I think we're going to uh, take a break now, and uh, when we come back. We're going to talk about the replacements rather than Trouble Boys. So, thanks, and we'll see you in a minute.
Hey, welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking about The Replacements and uh, the terrific book that was written about The Replacements called Trouble Boys. Um, And I think uh, now is the part of the show when we're going to talk replacements, which is uh, something I've done exhaustively in my life. uh, I'm a massive fan, and it all started for me with... Uh, Let It Be, uh, one of the most flippantly titled albums of all time. Uh, you know, what, what are you going to do? You name it after a, uh, uh, you know, uh, the greatest band of all time. You name one of your albums after one of theirs. And um, the funny thing is that they were actually going to name their follow-up Let It Bleed, but they decided against it uh, once uh, they signed to Warner Brothers. Um, but Let It Be to me is... Uh, it actually got a lot of attention this year um, during the presidential election because Tim Kaine um, claimed that it was his favorite album of all time, and uh, which would, it would have been funny if we had a vice president who's uh, you know he could link back to Gary's got a boner. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think you know for me, let it be right from the right from jump uh, with the you know Peter Buck uh, guitar jangly guitar part. Um, you know, I had listened to Sorry Ma and uh, less to Hoot Nanny at that point, but you know that was the signal to me that this was going to be an accessible album. And then I started listening to it, and it's emotionally all over the spectrum. Um, you know, it's it's got um, we're co- you know songs like We're Coming Out, which are borderline hardcore, and it's got songs like Androgynous and Unsatisfied, which are you know, borderline, you know, as far as I'm concerned, soul songs. So, Not to uh, mention a Kiss cover. Yeah, actually, that too. Uh, <laughs> uh, frankly, I wish it wasn't there, but it... Uh, it, it, it really, really, that was like one of my favorite songs on that album the first time I heard it, which is pretty funny, <laughs> and I didn't know it was a Kiss song. <laughs> I did, and that was part of the problem. I was like, what? Come on. But it, it's kind of great that it's... It's kind of great that it's there in theory, but, you know, top to bottom, I, I listen... I still listen to that album, you know, a lot, and um, uh, I don't know, what, what was your introduction to it, Jerry? So, yeah, it's kind of funny. My introduction to it was through uh, Don't Tell a Soul, and I had... Um, I had been up late with a friend watching MTV and um, You Be Me for a While video came on. I just knew that the band was different. I'd never even heard of The Replacements. I just was like, oh, these guys look cooler than, you know, the hair, 10 hair metal videos that were on before. And something about the song is kind of catchy. And I went to Tower Records knowing, you know, I read that it was The Replacements. And I bought Let It Be, thinking that it had uh, You Be Me for a while on it. <laughs> I didn't know the name of that song. And, uh, you know, I think you and I had talked afterwards, and you had expressed that oh, this was, like, one of your favorite bands and, you know, went on to buy me more albums by them. But, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, opening up with I Will Dare and Favorite Thing just sold me right away. Just, again, like, at that point in my life, I was really searching for for bands that were, you know, kind of to quote a replacement song left of the dial and that were different but I've always liked melody I've always liked you know kind of rock and roll sensibility and, and they had that which was kind of rare back then you know people were either noisy or they were fast or they had a lot of different things going on that was kind of cool or they were goth or you know English or whatever was going on these guys were you know really American and, and really tuneful and, and the songwriting alone like androgynous you know I was in junior high and you know, that song kind of just made you think. It's a great song. And the other one on that album that 
I, I think is probably my top two replacement songs is, is 16 Blue. It's just, yeah. I mean, just a heavy song with, with great lyrics um, that have, have come to mean way more to me as I've gotten older, but, you know, it was a song that caught me right off the bat. It's funny, that was not one of my favorite songs when I was younger. I used to love, you know, the heavy hitters were coming out, and then I, you know, I got really hooked on Unsatisfied. That was probably, you know, I mean, there was a point in my life where I would have said that was my favorite song ever, and... Um, but it's funny, 16 Blue, now that I, you know, look back on it, it's a pretty brilliant song. And the other one is, you know, uh, um, you know, I mean, you listen to an answering machine, and that's just a really wrenching kind of love song that, you know, sung by somebody who won't admit to writing a love song. Um, it's pretty, uh, you know, it, it, that, that like I said, emotionally, that album is everywhere. I mean, you got Tommy Gets His Tonsils Out and Gary's Got a Boner. You've got two throwaway joke songs that are pretty good songs. Yeah, and you've got... Unsatisfied you know, and... Dry. Yeah, unsatisfied I mean, and... I didn't know what to do with Unsatisfied because it was so different than the kind of rock that I was listening to at the time. And it yeah. had a 12-string... I mean, it sounded like, you know, Richie Sambora on guitar or something. <laughs> I was just like, what is this? It's a great song. Yeah, I, I, I still love it. I... And it, I had the great pleasure because it was not a song that they would have played uh, live when I was younger. Uh, when I'd go see them, it was more, you know, they were much more of a high volume, uh, you know, uh, live band. And, um, you know, on the reunion tours, when I saw them out in L.A. Um, and also when we saw them, if, uh, actually, no, they didn't play it in Forest Hills, but when I saw them out in L.A., they, they played that one night and they played Androgynous the other. Whatever, whatever, and it, it actually, the, the albums made a lot of sense in that context, um, because they split the, um, they split the set list on the two different nights they played at the Palladium in LA. And, um, you know, you, you realize that every song on that, there's a, a kind of a counterpoint, like those songs are almost made in pairs. So one night they'd play, we're coming out the next night, they play favorite thing. One night they'd play unsatisfied. The next night they play androgynous one night they play answering machine. The next night they play 16 blue. So it was like, they almost, those songs almost paired up and I never even thought of it that way until I saw them live, you know, 30 years after, uh, I was meant to, but, uh, you know, moving on, I, Tim is the other one. And, and I, you know, will still to, you know, go to my grave saying this, this album was, you know, maimed, not killed by uh, shitty production. And I'm not an audiophile by any, any stretch, but, you know, it's just so that mid-'80s uh, production just kills me. It was so clean. It was so antiseptic. Um, and I really would love to hear this album um, re-recorded or remastered or whatever, um, whatever it is that uh, you can do to an album to, to take off the, the clean edges. But... Um, you know, I, I I love the songwriting on Tim. Again, another sort of strangely sequenced album. I think it's really back heavy. Uh, I think you know the two best songs on the album are are uh, Little Mascara and Left of the Dial, and they're sort of in no man in the no man's land of deep in the in the second side of an album. Um, a concern that no longer exists. But uh, you know, where did you did you come into that one after Let It Be Jer? Yeah, I did actually. So I I remember getting this on tape and and at the mall and uh, yeah, I mean same thing. It's it's a they're pretty similar to me and I, I actually Tim is my favorite replacements album uh, and mainly because I think it just has the most you know the the best amount of great songs. There's there's no real throwaways on here for me and that second side as you would say back in the day 
with Bastards of Young, Left of the Dial, Little Mascara, Here Comes the Regular. I mean, it, it's just a great, great album. But it is, it, it, it has that 80s distance, that overproduction. That, uh, I think it was actually produced by Tommy Ramone. Yeah, was it? Tommy Erdelai. Nice. Yeah. Where, where did you come in, Christian? What was your first taste of the replacements? Was it the earlier stuff or Tim and Let It Be? So my first, I sort of got them all at once, which is which is a common theme, I think, of uh, um, of a lot of you know my exposure to the to these bands. Partly because I, I did get them all at once. I raided you know Wyndham CD collection and loaded them all onto iTunes, um, and then I would sort of go home from a weekend trip with him and start plowing through this stuff. So exactly where I figured it out. Um, you know, I, I think it was late high school for me. Uh, and I think I sort of breezed past it the first time. I mean, it was difficult to, it didn't, it didn't quite click when I first listened to, um, to Hootenanny, I think. And, uh, it wasn't actually until, yeah, I got to, to let it be and, and sort of gave it a, a full listen top to bottom and realized like how much variation there was in the, um, you know, in the songwriting from, from track to track. I mean, that you could have, um, that you could have, as we said, you know, black diamond and androgynous on the on the same uh, on the same album, um, which don't seem at face value to have anything in common at all. Um, Except, but there is clearly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, to this album, I, I think like, I, I, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I think "Kiss Me on the Bus" is just an awesome song. "Waitress in the Sky" too. I mean, those are huge favorites of mine. Um, I don't. It, it's tough because I, I never really got the single experience um, out of this uh, out of this band, so I, I wasn't really sure what the popular songs were and, and what weren't. Um, and you know, I think obviously "Bastards of Young" is is played everywhere all the time to this day. Um, but with the exception of that, it was sort of uh, I, I guess it was it really was a sort of intuitive experience. So I mean, yeah, I'd say "Kiss Me on the Bus" and "Waitress in the Sky" were my two favorites, but. recollection uh bastards the young i mean it was a late single but it wasn't a single single they had a hard time kind of figuring out what their best i mean maybe not internally but uh, as far as that seems astonishing to me yeah it does to me too i mean the fact that you put out the ledge of uh please to meet me rather than um you know uh can't hardly wait. I mean, that's just a, it's such a no brainer to me. And can't hardly wait wasn't even a single to the best of my recollection. I mean, it might have been a later single, but um, by I that think time, at that time would... the ship had sailed. You know, yeah. It was it another was thing too, be... though, that you know, I remember actually seeing the video for Bastards of, of of Young, and this was post obviously the album coming out. Since I got into them in the very late eighties, early nineties, but. Um, you know, and the video literally is a, a speaker, you know, <laughs> vibrating with the, with the hand, yeah, the hand of a man smoking a cigarette. That's one know? of about three videos they made almost exactly like yeah. that, by the way, um, <laughs> which is such a fuck you to the MTV era. <laughs> right, but they they did it. I mean, and, and I mean, and part of it was that they had written, you know, they had had a song on the previous album called Senior Video, which was just a, you know, a 
uh, you know, sort of takedown of the whole, you know, uh, form over substance music generation uh, they thought they were living in. So to follow that up with a good video would have been kind of hypocritical. And again, it was another way of shooting yourself in the foot, but they released a video of, of a speaker with a cigarette on top of it and then somebody kicking it over at the end of the song. Which is something... And it was, it was a bigger... Uh, it was a wider, like, a, a wider sort of, you know, point of contention, though, in the, in the music world, right? Like, it would, not everybody immediately saw music videos and thought... Wow, this is a great idea. This won't compromise our art form at all. No, um, but I mean, there's, yeah. there, and actually, uh, you know, we'll talk about this later on our uh, uh, to be recorded sound breaking uh, PBS documentary series podcast. But um, there's a whole uh, hour devoted to MTV and the sort of uh, um, you know the the evolution of of you know the sort of visual. Alongside the the, um, the music, music for television, yeah, and it was you know the people who did resist were left behind. Um, you know they were you know they have. Uh, I remember Tom Petty sort of famously poo pooing MTV, but you know and who's more you know who's better remembered for videos than Tom Petty. Um, you know, I think it painted. Not exactly a guy who had a face for it, so maybe no, that had something no, to do kidding. with it. I mean, as opposed to Tommy Stinson, who would have been a fucking rock star on there. Um, you know, it, it really was, uh, it was too bad um, that it necessarily, you know, it, I'm not sure if it's too bad it existed. It was definitely a, you know, a, a set, you know, a. Too bad that it divided. Yeah, but it was too bad so many people died by resisting it. Well, I think it was also the time, and the book actually did a good job of this, going back to the book real quick, just kind of where it was that sellout. You know, you kind of had that that uh, sellout stigma or you're not true to the DIY spirit or, or the rock and roll kind of spirit to do videos. And I think the replacements, again, kind of used that to, to hang themselves as usual. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a that's a good sort of stepping off point to ask about, you know, another aspect of this band. I mean, like, they are now um, totally lionized by, you know, the indie rock world and um, I think an even more sort of mainstream vein of, of rock and roll these days. But um, there is a sort of, uh, I think, almost, you know, people... people misplace um a sort of diy ethic about this band like and they're the first to and i think mayor makes this point in his book but um you know that this is the least diy band on the planet they didn't even have driver's licenses like there was nothing they could have done for themselves they couldn't pack their own gear they could barely tune their instruments like um you know but uh but they still sort of they they fall into this um uh, into this sort of anti-corporate um, and, you know, very much... I mean, I, I guess it's partly a punk rock ethos, um, but certainly they were afraid of selling out, but they certainly weren't prepared to do it for themselves either. No, I don't either. think they were afraid of selling out. I think they were afraid of succeeding. I think there's a difference. I think, you know, the it's perception... Of, there's this perception with bands like Pavement and, you know, the sort of, you know, high art, uh, you know, college uh, bands that... Um, you know, that really made a conscious decision that selling out was something they didn't want to do. I think these guys were really, you know, more fundamentally afraid of success. Um, And that's, you know, there's a major difference between intellectualizing that and simply, um, you know, just, yeah, you know, sort of, you know, maybe not even accidentally, but railing against it, um, uh, you know, in a sort of petulant, um, and and not really well thought out way. Well, uh, in I think the two thousand, sorry, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say that I think, um, you know, I think that with these guys, um, you know, I think part of the lionization in the indie rock community now uh, is whether or not it's conscious on people's part is is partially and it's it's at least partially because um, they failed uh, at what they were attempting to do. I don't know if they had become um, uh, simple minds, for instance, uh, or somebody that big, you know, the sort of um, you know arena touring kind of band. Uh, whether or not their legend would be nearly as as uh, palatable to the people who who really deify them at this point. Maybe. I mean, the other thing, when is is, you know, the two albums we just named and the songs we just named are that much better than anything a lot of those bands ever put out, you know? Absolutely. So it's a band that, you know, I think other people wanted to push into the mainstream and then heard what we hear and, you know, I think probably what Westerberg and, and the rest of the band kind of knew. But, um, but you know, it, yeah. it's just, it's a band that, you know, like, Left of the Dial is one of the best rock songs ever written. I mean, it's just a great song, and it's it's hard to, it's hard to match that. I mean, the, I think the thing is with these guys is they wore it as a, I think the fear of success is, is absolutely right on, and but I think they wore the, you know, DIY, the, I guess, poser and DIY kind of uh, ethos as an excuse or something. Well, and I think, you know, myself notwithstanding, people love R.E.M., right? So I, I don't think that it's impossible. And, and that's and th- that's the certainly the... the hmm. No? I, I the think same. they no, I mean, I, do. But, yeah, I mean, I think they've had... R.E.M. had two careers. You know, there's the early R.E.M. and the late R.E.M. And I think you, right. you love either one. Yeah. But I don't think anybody thinks of R.E.M. as the lovable losers. I think no. uh, the replacements kind of fit into that, you know, lovable loser category um or you know the band that said fuck you to the you know to the establishment where rem uh certainly didn't um i think you know i think that there's a you know i think there's a difference and the funny thing is is you know i didn't realize and another thing that i think bob mayor was you know fantastic at at uh dredging up was how much how competitive they were with rem um yeah that was a pretty awesome subplot in this there goes our career you know, it's like in that it's in that giant limo over there. Um, but it was also a totally one-sided competition. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, it was REM was sort of saying, "Oh, we really wish our our friends, those guys over there, would make it," and the guys in you know the replacements were saying, "Fuck you, we're not your friends." <laughs> you know, it's like that was one of the, that really truly was one of the more enjoyable subplots in the whole thing because it, it was, uh, you know, I was a fan of both, um, and I, uh, but I do, and I think that you know, I do think the way their stories ended you know, really does shape uh, people's historical perspective on them. I mean, R.E.M. just stuck around for way, way, way too long. And, um, you know, the replacements crashed and burned, and so they're much more, um, I think, you know, again, a lot of people love R.E.M. I love R.E.M.'s, uh, you know, I love some of R.E.M. stuff, but there's something more, that, that there's something that you want to identify with uh, and the replacements more than you want to identify with REM. Yeah, you root well, for the replacements. I mean, with the, you want to... Uh, with the exception of... Yeah, just with the exception of Bob, I mean, it's almost as though these guys died young at 27, you know? And they didn't. And that, that's sort of the amazing part. It's like they are immortalized and sort of frozen in time as this band that just completely imploded, but they actually, you know, they, they lived on, and Westerberg had a decently successful career after this. Yep. Um, 
But the other uh, Tommy just Stentil while we're, Guns and Roses for the past twenty years, I think. Well, just and the other the other comparison or the other band I wanted to throw into the mix here for you know is, is obviously Husker Du. Um, I mean, those guys were sort of the cross town rivals um, with a completely different and much more disciplined approach to, to what they were doing. Um, but similarly, I think there was sort of a rivalry in the early days uh, that that was set off between those groups. And I think unlike REM, Husker Du was competitive with replacements and sort of said, we're yeah. going yeah. to blow you out of the water, you know. But they were, again, I think, you know, Husker Du's outlook on, on the replacements was probably, um, and I'm not uh, imagining this because they were actually, you know, I've heard them talk about it, it was, it was like, how are those guys as popular as we are? We work <laughs> yeah. our asses off, you know. And they yeah. come in wasted, clown around, and everybody thinks they're great. So it is, uh, you know, it's variations on the theme. I like it. The, the, the funny one, of the, you know, there's a couple great uh, parts of the book. Again, uh, I think, um, you know, when they're talking about the sort of low-level rivalry with uh, among, uh, you know, Twin Cities bands, and then they realize, you know, there's a point at which Tommy Stinson sees one of one of the other bands like in the hallway at First Avenue during a Prince show, and they're like, fucking Prince is awesome, <laughs> you know? And Because uh, it must have just been insane to see him back then. Uh, the other was the, um, and this was, again, one of those, like, um, you know, really sad but, but brutally uh, honest emotional moments in the book is when Tommy Stinson gets his first job that isn't playing bass for the replacements, and it's a telemarketing gig in L.A., after the band splits up and he's like really proud of himself for having a job yeah he feels really um, good and shows up every day because he never had one and I think it was actually and after it, Bash and Pop too which was a complete you know bust might have been might have been but it was that that to me rang as as emotionally you know uh, as any as anything I've read in a while and god I read The Sympathizer this year so before, yeah, no, who let this guy suspend his life for 20 years, you know? It's sort of a, it's a it's shocking so concept. Yeah, it's like, you know, I mean, he, he's, you know, he, he's got the Kimmy Schmidt syndrome. I mean, sewing he t-shirts into, in a uh, sweatshop. <laughs> yeah, he, he went into a cave at the age of 11 and came out at 33. So it is, uh, you know, it, it's pretty remarkable. But, yeah. I mean, I, I, guess, I guess part, you know, part of talking about the replacements to me is, is talking about, you know, Sorry Ma, Hoot Nanny, both, you know, enjoyable, listenable records. And then, you know, you've got Let It Be, Tim, and Please to Meet Me, which I think is, was, you know, really misunderstood. And, uh, you know, when you go back and revisit, it's got some great songs on it. But really, it's a pretty short burst of brilliance, um, you know, that, that lasted only a couple of years. I mean, I don't even consider the last two albums, you know, worthy of the catalog but that could be my own bias other people probably like them yeah I mean I mean it's funny Pleased to Meet Me I've come to really love and, and I think we all enjoyed a, a fun night out in Brooklyn where we saw um, Beach Slang from Philly do this album start to finish and I gotta say like I, I had this album you know it was the the third of the trifecta that I bought and I was so excited to listen to it and it just it kind of fell flat for me for many years I mean I love IOU or Alex Chilton and of course uh, Can't Hardly Wait but um, you know, that night kind of, it was around the time we read Trouble Boys, or I read Trouble Boys, we went and saw that, that show that was a lot of fun, and, and kind of woke me back up to this album, and songs like Nevermind, and Valentine, and, and you know, 
that are Skyway that it's, it's a it's a much better album than I ever gave it credit for it. And I think those are I think you know there are people that love the first two albums probably as much as we love these three. Um, but for me, it is the middle or sort of the the this you know eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven kind of replacements that is is the band to me that that I listen to and kind of think of as the classic replacements. Um, Don't tell a soul. Like I said, is, is the one that I came to first. And, and I think there are a couple of good songs on there. It, it's, it, it's a decent Paul Westerberg solo album, if anything. And then the last one is really kind of unlistenable. He actually sounds, and they talk about in the book as well. I mean, they, I think he was just really struggling with alcohol at the time, and, and he can barely sing. And if you go back and do listen to that album, you can really hear his voice straining. It's tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of his, there's a riot going on without being good. Right. <laughs> anyway um so i think that that's uh you know we're coming to a close on on our our replacement spot we've uh but i am glad we covered it and i i can't uh say enough how much i i implore people to read uh trouble boys i, I actually and all of uh you know I, I walked away and i i'm not and i'm fairly confident in my uh my assessment it's i it, to me it's it's my favorite if not you know i'm not sure if it's the best but it is my favorite rock and roll book i've ever read yeah i think love the band hate the band enjoy music it's a you know don't enjoy this type of music and it's just a great book it's a great story about uh four guys and and then slim can't forget slim but uh it's it's a really heart-wrenching and and you know amazing story i love the book all right well that's a wrap so uh thanks for listening and um before we, we sign out, when don't forget to uh, tune into our replacements playlist on Spotify as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much. That's it for today's episode of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And drop us a line at brotherpod.com. Thanks very much to Damien Kendall for producing. And from Wyndham, Jeremy, and Christian, see you next time.